right, we're going to read starting at verse 1 of John 13, and we'll go down to verse 20, if you would please follow along as I read. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. We're thankful this morning for God's word. The title this morning is Purified by Love. We're going to take this in two parts as we look at chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. But I would remind you of where we've come from. We've moved out of chapters 11 and 12 from the raising of Lazarus to Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem riding on a humble donkey. We've seen his lessons of the impending suffering and sacrifice that he would endure as part of his triumph. And we've seen his motivation of obedience Now as we come to chapter 13, we see his expression of love and his desire from that love to purify all those who are his. If you received a sermon outline this morning, um, just a little note about that. We have four different parts of our messages on Sundays, and so you should be able to follow along and know where we are as we're moving about the message. But this first element is the call. This is the thing that we ought to grasp from Scripture as God's call to our hearts to listen to his truth. And the call is very simple. You probably could have predicted it because it came straight from the second part of our passage. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Imitate Christ's love for you by loving each other. In so many ways, 
This passage is simple. It is plain. It is cut and dry. There's very few question as to what Jesus means at any point. It's one of those passages in Scripture where if, if you happen to know perhaps a loved one who stays away from the Bible and saying things like, oh, I don't know if I'd ever understand it, point them to John 13. Ask them to take 10 minutes and read that out loud to themselves and see if the love of Christ does not leap off of the page into their hearts. Because that's his design for us this morning, to imitate Christ's love for us by loving each other. Anytime the theme of the passage comes to love, I'm overwhelmed by the truth that we see in Scripture of God's love for his people. And it's an amazing thing for me on this side of the music stand to get to look at you all and say, God loves you. An amazing privilege to be able to declare that, but how even better for us who know that to be true. That the love of God is available to us through Christ this morning. And anything he calls us to do, he calls us to do motivated by love. Not motivated by a self-manufactured means of pleasing him on our own. But because Christ has satisfied all that his father has called him to do, we can walk in that and imitate him. You know, before moving here, I was a middle school teacher. And my last year of teaching, we had moved into a new school building, which was a terrifying task to think about it. Moving grades K through 8 from one school building to another. And probably the most refreshing moment in all of that was when our principal officially told us, yes, there will be a moving company. You will not be moving all of these boxes, person who is the only male in the entire building. <laughs> it was a little bit daunting. And it was a huge relief to find there would be somebody else who would step in and at least take the bulk of the work of moving these ancient wooden desks from the 1850s, it seemed. These heavy pieces of furniture that would go across town into a different school building and be set up just so. And, and all the textbooks, I mean, you can imagine moving a school is a huge task. And once we had moved in and felt settled and felt like this is our new home and everything is well, there was one big piece missing. See, at the last building we were in, we didn't own it. It was owned by the city, and therefore the city actually provided janitorial services for the building. So the janitor was not on staff at the school itself, but on staff for the city. And he was a great guy. But we had to leave him behind. And there was no amount of money that we could offer that guy that would be better than what he was making there to come along with us. We needed a new janitor. We needed somebody to clean the toilets, to sweep the floors. We needed somebody who knew how to operate an ancient boiler in the scary basement of this new school building. We needed a lot from this one person. We needed somebody who was going to come in during summer break while we're all off enjoying vacation time and those kind of things to come in and wax every single floor of kindergarten through eighth grade and the cafeteria and the gymnasium. And this was a topic I didn't want to bring up with anybody because I knew this was going to be an impossible role to fill. This was going to just take somebody who wanted to be there because they just loved Jesus and weren't worried about the workload and the money that they would make from it. And I can remember as we started to come back to school in August and starting to get our rooms 
set up, this was actually mid-July, I came in to put something in my room and I saw the big heavy floor waxing machine going down the hall. You could hear it a mile away. And surprisingly, it wasn't, though my hopes were maybe we found a guy. Who it, it wasn't. It's our principal. And she, given she has to be there all summer anyway, basically. But the principal was willing to take on the extra task of waxing the floor. And all throughout that last year that I taught, whenever a kid had a certain projectile issue in a classroom, she was there with a mop. I don't know if you, you can grasp, but if you've been in school perhaps, but if you can grasp the concept of, of teaching a middle school class, having that unfortunate and messy accident happen, calling the office to say, there's a terrible mess that needs to be cleaned up and who's going to do it and find the principal, our, our fearless leader and boss herself, come up the stairs and mop up all the mess. I mean, I had my lesson plan set after that because I was the Bible teacher, right? I mean, it was, all the papers went out the window. I was like, kids, look at what your principal is doing right now. We notice when acts of humility express real sacrificial love. And this is, in an even grander scale, what Jesus comes to do in this very passage. Now, you probably maybe know a little bit about foot washing. It's not something that we do today so much. Um, but particularly in the first century, uh, this was something where if you were to enter a house to go have a meal, you would immediately be met by a servant who would sit you down somewhere and pick up your feet and begin to wash them. And this was a task that was meant for the lowest of the lows. The, the Hebrew Midrash, a set of rules by the Pharisees, stated that not even a Jewish slave should be allowed to wash the feet of another person. It had to be something reserved for Gentiles, for non-Jews, for people who were not part of God's covenant special family. It was such a lowly activity. It was such a humiliating thing to do. And as we come to this passage and we see Jesus take on this role, John is very careful to set us up in the beginning and actually through the chapter to see just the depth of his love for his disciples. What you this morning are being called to imitate is an impossible standard. In verses 1 through 5, John shows us that the Most High bows low. Look again at the beginning of the passage in verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, I've been highlighting this as we've been going through the Gospel of John, of course. Um, the hour was going to, it was, it was impending, it was moving closer and closer. And then in chapter 12, we had that moment where the, the clock struck midnight in the mind of Christ, and he said, The hour has come. This is now the point of no return. This is the place now where everything is going to be set in motion to bring me to a place of execution unjustly, as my Father has called me to do. And amazingly, don't rush over this concept. Instead of getting away by himself to reflect, to spend time in prayer, as he often did, as he rose early in the morning before the sun came up to do by himself, just about every day probably, Instead of getting away to focus on himself and shooing his disciples to say, you guys don't even know what's on my plate right now, he brings himself low. 
Jesus' high position before the Father is expressed. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Little would his disciples imagine that those all things in the hands of Jesus would include their own stinky, dirty feet. And that he had come from God and was going back to God. His destination, his origin, plainly laid out for us to see because this was not just the act of another person like any of us. This was a symbolic gesture of divine love and humility. And verse 5 then moves us into this moment of climax for the story. It says in verse 4, rather, Jesus rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel. He tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Boy, if you grew up in Sunday school, that can so easily just be categorized in the, oh yeah, I know Jesus did that, and he walked on water, and he fed the 5,000, and he loved kids, and all these sweet things about Jesus. And they are. They're precious truths of who he is. But if we categorize them as just another part of the list, and if we categorize anything Christ has done as just another part of the list, we will miss the significance so easily. He laid aside his outer garment. He took a towel and wrapped it around his waist. He didn't just act like a servant. He looked like a servant. He took the lowest place of service for us. You know, it's interesting in considering this all things in his hands, it came to my mind that if you remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, do you remember one of the things the devil tempted him with? This is in the Gospel of Luke, if you're curious, chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. The devil basically shows him the whole world and says, if you'll bow down and worship me, I will give you all things. If we use the same language, it would be that the devil would say, what I can do right now is put all things into your hands. And isn't it amazing that what John points out here is the Father has given all things into the hands of Christ. He had it all. The Most High bows low. In verses 6 through 11, He overcomes obstinance. And where else would that be but in Peter, right? Who else is going to be the talk before you speak? I I read one of the the best things I read in a commentary this past week was, um, sorry, the commentator said, Peter only seems to open his mouth in order to switch his foot. (laughs) Move from this foot in the mouth to the other foot in the mouth. And that's Oh, I love Peter, and I I would never want to disparage him because I find so much in common with this dude, right? But Jesus comes and overcomes this aggressive misunderstanding. I hope you noticed as we read Peter's words, he said, are you washing my feet? That's the emphasis in the Greek. You, it'd be in all caps, washing my feet. This is wrong. This is backwards. You're the master. I'm the disciple. You might imagine that if Jesus wanted to have a further conversation about this moment, he might have said, okay, Peter, so why am I washing your feet if you're the disciple and I'm the master? Shouldn't it be pretty obvious that the roles should be switched here? He doesn't go that route, though, does he? But, you know, we can say that right now. Will you wash my feet? He misunderstands, and he's very aggressive about it. He says, you will never wash my feet. Literally, in the Greek, again, he says, never, meaning all through eternity, to the end of the age, shall you never wash my feet. And then Jesus meets him 
in his obstinance and overcomes that obstinance with comfort. He gives an explanation. If I don't wash you, you have no share in me. How quickly that foot switches in the mouth of Peter, right? You will never wash my feet. If I don't wash you, you don't have a part of me. Okay, not just my feet, but my hands and my head, right? You just have to imagine Peter immediately saying those things. And what a wonderful heart of a disciple, though there is ignorance and misunderstanding and there is talk before you speak, firmly grounded in Peter's heart and life, can you not smile at the thought of Peter being desperate to be near Jesus and that anything that would be in his way of being close to him, he says, all right, wash my hands and my, hand, my head, my feet, everything. I, I need it all. And Jesus says, no, that's not exactly what I mean by what I'm doing here, and we'll explain that later. He gives a comfort. The Most High bows low. He overcomes obstinance in verses 12 through 17. He gives a clear command. We've seen it, and this is our call from this passage. Do you understand what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord. You're right. If I've done this, you also ought to do this for each other. Certainly, we don't mean to take this literally, okay, in that foot washing wouldn't have the same significance or practicality as today. This is not another sacrament. We don't put it alongside baptism or the Lord's Supper. This is an expression of Jesus' love, and the heart behind his action is what we're being called to imitate this morning. He gives a clear command. Lastly, he shows the security of Scripture, because in this, he has to bring about a painful exception I'm not speaking of all of you, he says in verse 18. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. You see, so often we hear that scripture being fulfilled in the gospels, and and it sounds almost just like Jesus is trying to adhere to a rule book. But this is his own word. And do you remember the first lines of John's gospel? In the beginning was the what? The word. He's fulfilling what he's already promised. There's a security in scripture. Even in that painful exception, there will be a purpose of faith in verse 19. I'm telling you all these things beforehand so that when it takes place that you may believe that I am who I say I am. Even in his betrayal, he finds an opportunity for faith. And he gives that authoritative commission. Whoever receives me, or who, I'm sorry, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. If that is the end goal of these disciples is to be the beginning of a worldwide commission to show Christ to all. And that this element of love is so essential to what Jesus is commanding. So here's a question for us. If Christ has loved and has purified us by his blood, are we willing to serve each other with our lives? Jesus is not calling us to make atonement for other people's sins. That was the exclusive task of Jesus himself. Only the Son of God can shed blood and satisfy the wrath of God. For us, it would take an eternity to satisfy the wrath of God against our own sin. But Jesus was the only spotless lamb who could satisfy the wrath of God for others. And so what could be the problem with this? What could be the thing that slows us down? I thought it was interesting that the text that is quoted from Psalm 41 in the latter part of this passage refers to David writing about Persecution, writing about being the suffering servant for God and how that is fulfilled in the life of Christ. And so our conflict, in simple words, is that it's easier to lift the heel than to wash the foot. It would be easier for us to lift our heel against someone than to bow low and wash their feet. 
God's love for us is a much safer subject. Oh, this is uh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, on the whole, that is in, in entirety, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. Because unfortunately, though we might chuckle at Peter and, and kind of imagine, you know, where his heart is and how we find a sort of camaraderie with him in that, we also have to recognize that there's betrayal going on right here in the midst of one of the most beautiful acts of Christ for his disciples. You know, in the Middle East, even today, and even, uh, let's see, I think it was 20, oh boy, I can't remember how long ago it was. It was quite a while. George uh, W. Bush uh, had a shoe thrown at him in the Middle East, if you remember that. Um, it is the lowest form of humiliation. It is the greatest insult to, um, it's the highest insult to throw a shoe at somebody, even today. Um, and that's because for generations, this idea of, of being at someone's foot is a, is a, picture of submission to a greater authority. It's, it's humiliation. It's being brought to the lowest point. And as we could see in the beginning of this passage, uh, they've already begun a meal and they still had dirty feet. None of the disciples got into the house and said, hold on a second, let's not sit down at the table yet. Our feet are filthy. You know why nobody said that? Because nobody knew who was going to do it. There was no other servant. There was no Gentile that they could go and find. I mean, oddly enough, there were Gentiles in chapter 12. But Philip didn't say, hey, we're going to need some Gentiles later. Come wash our feet. There was no plan for the foot washing because nobody wanted to recognize that the plan might involve them doing the foot washing themselves. These are all disciples, by the way, right? And no one speaks up in the beginning to say, yes, I would like to wash everyone's feet. So they go through this meal, and in the middle of it, Jesus rises up and takes on the task himself. Takes this position of low humiliation that is, you know, just a, a, a sibling to an insult in many ways. But Judas found it easier to lift up his heel than to bow low and wash his Lord's feet. You know, it's scary when we get to this point and start talking about Judas. Because we have verses like in the beginning here. Verse 2, during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The devil had put it into the heart of Judas. That is literally that he cast it into the heart. How in the world could God let something like that happen? Have you ever wondered? Why is it that Judas becomes this, you know, for all of history really, ultimate sign of betrayal, ultimate figure of betrayal. Well, the scary thing, even scarier than the demonic action here, is when we look at what's not said. Why is it that it was the heart of Judas and not the heart of any of the others? Why is it that there was an opening, there was a place where the devil could see and say, I'm going to cast this idea into that heart? Because there was already a heart of superiority in Judas. Now, that was present to some other degree with the disciples, right? But there was something unique about Judas's position, and we know that from the other Gospels, that he was even going and taking money out of the money bag throughout these three years that he walked around with Jesus. Temptation is ready for us at a moment's notice. But the scarier question is, are, are, are our hearts ready for that temptation? Are we ready to battle against it, or are we opening the door for it? Judas is obvious, but think again about the other disciples. Who's going to wash my feet? 
is what's on their minds. Certainly not, should I be the foot washer? Again, Peter's protest is emphatic. You will never wash my feet. This may remind you of another passage in Matthew 16, where Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day I'm going to rise. And Peter, it says, Matthew tells us, that Peter takes Jesus aside and says to him, and, and in some translations says he rebukes him or corrects him, this will never happen to you in a correcting fashion. This is one of those low moments for Peter, not as bad as what we're seeing here, but we're seeing that misunderstanding runs deep in our hearts. And that misunderstanding runs deep because our simple problem is that our default thinking isn't to serve Christ or other people, it's to serve ourselves. I'm the center of my universe. That's where the impurity comes that Christ needs to wash away. Temptation is ready for us. Are we ready for it? If that is our simple problem, we see the expression of it in the way we build even the little sanctuaries for our dignity, for our accomplishments, for our pride, in whatever way that might reveal itself. If we like to drive a certain type of vehicle, live in a kind of house, or work a certain job, or wear certain kinds of clothing, or speak with lofty words, whatever that expression might be, our heart's inclination is to lift up the heel and kick Jesus out of the way so that we can continue building a safe place to guard our sin, to guard our attitudes that are contrary to the character of God. You know, it's fascinating that one of the fruits of doing that is to accuse God of wrong. So, so often in our culture, and even in some cases in the church, people struggle and, and, mis and misunderstand that the love of God is something that is so distant and so unaccessible that all there is is wrath and anger at sin and a perfect standard that no human being can meet. And if that person doesn't know Christ, then if that's their whole view of God, there is no hope whatsoever. And so they easily lift the heel to God. They see injustice in God's part. Paul writes about this in Romans, if you're curious for further study. All the while, though, our hearts build up sanctuaries for our own self-centeredness. But that self-centeredness that we all struggle with to some degree can easily become an idea of superiority, a mindset of superiority. And from that superiority, we find hostility to Christ. Your hostility to Christ may not be going off and for 30 pieces of silver selling out your best friend but it may be that your attitude is consumed with your own comfort, your, your own progress, your own achievement, your own happiness. And as it says in another place, friendship with the world is enmity with God. We cannot have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world in the sense of our priorities. Now, Jesus is going to pray in John 17. He says, I'm not praying for you to take them out of the world. He's saying, no, there's purpose for us to be here. So I'm not saying, let's all become monks and hunker down until Jesus shows up. It's way more complicated than that. That would be the easy route. Not trying to diss monks or anything. But it would be easier if we could just simply say, let's keep the world out so that all we have to deal with is our own sin in our own hearts. But unfortunately, we do. Not unfortunately, but to the 
<laughs> to the unfortunate circumstance of our fallen self, I would say, of our life apart from Christ, we do need to live in this world. We do need to suffer through and follow Christ in all the ways that he's laid out for us. What we see is a, a clear understand, clearer understanding of why we need something so drastic as the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from all of our sin. Jesus himself purifies us at the cross. And he, in doing that, gives us a sanctuary to return to him daily for that refreshing of his love, that refreshing of his purification. If you remember what Jesus said to Peter, he said, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. If you have faith in Christ, if you've been born again, you don't need to continually go back and be born again, again, over and over and over and re-up your membership and get baptized a million times. But you do need to wash your feet. You do need to come in to him in humility. I had a thought this week about what Jesus literally did in washing the feet of his disciples. And I wondered if we were stuck in a one-way time machine to 30 AD with no hope of returning finding ourselves in a Jewish nation as Gentiles, as I imagine most of us here are, we would have been the ones to be called upon to do this humiliating work. Not only would we leave behind our families and our jobs and our goals and dreams, but we would leave behind things like air conditioning, automobiles, fast food, grocery stores, We'd be leaving all these modern comforts behind with no hope of returning to them. And yet Christ, in a far better position than we find ourselves in the year 2022, left behind his glorious throne to be brought low. This is the grace of Christ shown to us in this moment that he, again, as John says in the beginning of his gospel, who was in the beginning the Word, and who was with God, and the Word was God. All things being made through him, without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He left all that behind for you. Such is the love of Christ for his own. Such is the still perfect strength and power of his love for you this morning, believer. This is the grace, the unmerited favor of the exchanging of the glorious Son of God, the Most High, for us who, apart from him, lost in our sin, are brought to the most low position. Jesus' love meets our needs perfectly as he becomes a sanctuary of love for us. This is why I... Thought, think back to the, the principal who was willing to mop the floors and clean up, clean up the vomit in the classroom and to scrub the, uh, to wax the floors over the summer, to do all those kinds of things because she understood that her position was not primarily as the principal, the main boss of that school. Her position was in Christ. And she could then be called to do whatever the Lord might ask her to do. As somebody once said before, if Christ has so loved me as to humble himself, not just to wash my feet, but to lay his life down on the cross, there is nothing he can't ask of me. 
And that is the heart cry of every believer, everyone who has so been purified by his love. In verse 9, his love meets us perfectly. That is, sorry, in, in verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. We have this reality of day-to-day needing to be cleansed from the sins that we trip up into. And the Bible kind of gives us this idea that before knowing Christ, it's as if our relationship with sin was one of diving into the deep end of the swimming pool. And after Christ, our relationship with sin progressively becomes more of a tripping up over the puddles as we follow Christ. In those moments that we are not looking forward, but perhaps look back, and trip ourselves up. Jesus is there in that very moment to meet us and to cleanse us as we come to him. In verse 19, he makes all things that were foretold unfold so that his glory can be declared perfectly. The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread, that is the one who I brought near to share a meal with, to share my life with. He has lifted his heel against me. Do you realize this is, in some way, all of our heart's position apart from Christ before God? That he would invite us into his goodness and we would kick it all away for our own plans. So Christ still humbles himself to wash our feet, to die in our place. He makes all these things foretold unfold for his glory, and he is no victim of his many enemies. We ought not look at Jesus with sorrow and pity, but in wonder and awe and adoration, because he is not a victim of his many enemies. Judas couldn't even betray him without being chosen for that purpose. See, when Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen, he's talking about all of them. He knew that he picked somebody who was going to betray him. It did not come as a surprise to him, but rather he set him up for this. It's tragic. It's sad. Judas was a lost cause, not to the eyes of the disciples who had no idea who he was. We'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. But before the Savior, who knew he would be betrayed, he bows low and humbly washes the feet of his betrayer. Judas couldn't betray him without being chosen for that purpose, and Jesus could not be lifted up on a cross without his first bowing low to take our place. Verse 1 again, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's two different ways we could understand that idea of to the end. One could be a matter of time, that is from the moment he called them to be disciples to the moment he died, that would be true, he loved them to the end. The other way, not quantitatively, but qualitatively, how did he love him? He loved his disciples, he loves his own, he loves you this morning, Christian, to the uttermost. He holds nothing back in expression of his love for you. He loves his own to the end. He was in control from the beginning. He remained in control when the hour came. And he is in control today, both of the universe and of the unique circumstances of your own life. He laid down his life to take it up again. Today, we are called by God's word to be purified by the loving, cleansing work of Christ's blood. And to, if we are in Christ, to refresh ourselves in him today to allow him, as it were, to stoop down and to wash our feet. 
Though everything right in us cries out and says, he shouldn't do that. I should be washing his feet. Like John the Baptist, when Jesus came to get baptized, John's response was, what are you doing here? I should be being baptized by you. But Jesus takes every moment of symbolic significance to show us his great love. So what do we do? What is the completion of this in our lives? How do we walk by the Spirit? We ought to bring the love of Christ through sincere fellowship and sacrificial service. This is the time of year where I noticed that the sunflowers that we planted went from down here to above my head. And what's fascinating about sunflowers, and I think I might have said this probably about the exact same time last summer, but sunflowers have a circadian rhythm that is a 24-hour cycle built into them to follow the sun as it goes across the sky. Their goal, though they don't always do it perfectly, and if you want to see how imperfectly they do it, you should come to my house because they're not that great at it. But their goal, according to their new nature, their nature, jumping the illustration to get to the point already, their goal, according to their nature, is to always be facing the sun, to ever be absorbing and gaining energy from the sun. And so it is for us. Our goal and our new nature in Christ is no longer to lift our heel up against him. That's our old nature. Our new nature is to lift our eyes to him, to follow him across the sky of our life, wherever he may lead us, to ever be looking in that direction. And this is what the Spirit's work is to create in us. The reason that in our hearts, perhaps if we well up with love and affection and worship at reading this passage, is because the Spirit is working that in us, is working a new nature, a new 24-hour cycle of constantly longing to be closer to Christ, to say, Lord, don't just wash my feet, but my hands and my head, you know how fallen I am. You know how messed up my life can get. And Jesus, in his comfort, comes to us and says, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet. You don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will understand it later. So we ought to, therefore, go to Jesus to have our feet washed for the sake of purity. That's why in verse 10 of chapter 13, he says, accept his feet. This is the daily working out of our coming to him saying, Lord, I recognize that wicked attitude in my heart of jealousy or of envy or of anger at that other person wanting something that's not mine that is our moments of coming to him and what does he do does he go yeah nick i know this is the 17th time today what's wrong with you can you get it together get out of my office no he bows low he wraps the cloth around his waist and he washes my feet the moment of confession is met with an expression of his love this is just for us today, the, the, and especially this past couple of years, there's been such an emphasis on hand washing and sanitizing, but that's, that's what this is, you know? Your kid, your five-year-old who comes out of the bathroom, did you flush the toilet? Nope, goes back in. Did you wash your hands? Nope, comes back in and wash hands. Trying to learn that, that rhythm, that new nature of, hey, I, I need to wash my hands after being in certain places and after certain activities, coming home from wherever I've been, I need to ever be coming to Christ have my feet washed to be renewed in him the aim of this purpose as bruce milne puts it in his commentary is the unreserved this is going to be a really long sentence so you can just listen to it and absorb something from it but i liked it a lot the unreserved submission of our minds to his truth firstly that we hold nothing back if jesus has done this for me there's nothing he can ask he can't ask of me the unreserved submission of our minds to his truth 
And in doing that, Milne says, we allow his words, his standards, his values, his attitudes, his commandments, his example, and teaching to rule our thoughts and determine our convictions. The character of Christ being formed in you by the work of the Spirit is to do just this, such that upon entering a circumstance where you find an opportunity to humble yourself and serve someone else, to do something that you can kind of sense no one wants to do in that room, to take care of that thing. When the husband and wife are sitting on the couch and the child in the far part of the room calls and says, I need a new diaper. At the end of the day, who's getting off the couch? It's the really spiritual one. No, it's the one who knows this is my opportunity I might be shooting myself in the foot here for later today. Who knows? But this is the opportunity. This is the practical outworking of foot washing. You needn't wash your brother and sister's feet on the way out of church to check a list, but to have an attitude of service, submissive, unreservedly to the character of Christ. Go to Jesus for foot washing. Go to each other to wash feet. Three things to end here. Walk in sacrificial service. Walk in sacrificial service. Be a sanctuary of love. Be what Christ has been for you. What are these things that we stoop down to? They might be diapers. But I also, in uh, some time at Panera this past week, noticed so many people caring for the elderly, coming in and sitting them down, getting them. It was, it was beautiful. I mean, I had this passage open. It was like, you guys, I'm wow. <laughs> the sermon illustration, it was amazing. Caring for our elderly loved ones changing diapers, caring for the disabled, going even to a friend and saying, hey, do you need a coffee break? Could I bring you a cup of coffee while you're at work? Could I come and help you with that annoying project that you have in your backyard that you haven't gotten to yet? Can we lay aside our own privilege and our own priorities for other people and thereby be an example of the love of Christ to the world around us? Walk in sacrificial service. Secondly, build up sincere fellowship. This is our mission together. Fellowship, again, if you remember all the way back to studying Philippians, fellowship is the sharing of a common goal and outcome. It's not just, although in part it is, coming and eating donuts together and talking together about our past week. That can be an element of fellowship. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But it must go deeper. There must be a deeper purpose. This is the church's mission together. In verse 8 of chapter 13, when Jesus says, you have no part with me unless I wash you, he's literally saying, you don't have fellowship with me. You're not close to me. And we're called to share that fellowship that we have in Christ with each other. Therefore, our fellowship together stems from our fellowship with him. And we need to make this a priority. This is the thing, if, if you were to ask me as a part of a church, what kind of things should you do? The number one thing, come to church on Sunday morning and worship God express love to the one who has loved you. And then secondly, uh, VBS leaders, plug your ears to this, is not VBS. It's not outreach. The second thing is loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's coming to D group or having a coffee break with somebody or doing CP tables. It's engaging in an expression of fellowship because without that fellowship, we don't grow in unity. And if we go off to mission without that, we're leaving behind one of the greatest assets of the church that Christ has given us, unity in him. Lastly, 
chapter. Walk in sacrificial service. Build up sincere fellowship. Lastly, rejoice in the blessing of obedience. In verse 17, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Maybe that's like, <laughs> this is perhaps one of my greatest fears is that, you know, after the sermon's over, you're like, okay, I knew all of that. But this verse really just leaped out at me this past week to remind me that I'm not here to just tell you stuff you already know, although that's part of it, but to call you to do these things, to call myself to do these things. If you know these things, Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. I almost want to just end every sermon with that. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do you know you should be bringing yourself low to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's great. But the blessing, the joy, the rejoicing in the blessing of obedience is in the doing of these things. Not perfectly, but in expressing a change of heart that produces more and more fruit as we go along our way. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that as we consider this great call to wash one another's feet, to humble ourselves, we know we cannot do this unless we are in Christ. There is no hope of pleasing you with our lives unless our lives have already been covered by the pleasing work of Christ before you. So I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would walk in this, that they would enjoy the blessing of doing this humbling work this work of the ones who are purified by the love of Christ to love each other. And Lord, if anyone in here doesn't know Christ, I pray that you would show them the depths of your great love. Lord, that they would know that they need only to sit down and to allow you to do your work, to wash their feet, to make them clean, to make them yours. Lord, we long for Christ to be glorified, and that is what we're going to sing about we pray this morning that with purified hearts, refreshed by your love, that you would call us to seek to serve one another as servants of Christ. We pray that you would receive all the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen.